Welcome back to The Pilgrim Soul, a podcast about the journey of faith in the world of today. I'm your host, Sophia, and this week I have the great joy of hosting a guest on the podcast. I'm joined by J.D. Flynn, who is a canon lawyer and journalist and father of, of three. J.D., welcome to The Pilgrim Soul. Oh, Sophia, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really grateful. I'm grateful to have you with us. Actually, uh, back when my co-hosts and I started this podcast a few years ago, you were one of the first names that we put on our list of people we'd love to interview. Uh, I think we'd recently heard your talk at the New York Encounter that you did in 2020, which I'll put a link to in the show notes for our listeners. And we were really moved by, yeah, your articulation of how being a father to children with disabilities has shaped your gaze on reality. Um, and I want to get there eventually, but I'd like to start with what you're perhaps better known for, uh, which is The Pillar, a recent uh, two-year-old, is that right? Two-year-old project? We launched The Pillar a little bit more than two years ago. So Okay. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So recent project. It's a, it's a toddler now. Toddler. Yeah, it's in the terrible twos. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. It feels like that sometimes. <laughs> Um, yeah, putting out for those of you who don't know, uh, it's news and analysis on the Catholic Church, uh, which you co-founded with with Ed Condon. I and I know numerous listeners have really benefited from the work that you're doing and been struck by how different it is from uh, from the majority of other news outlets that I'm exposed to. So I'm yeah, really interested in hearing from you what inspired you to set out on that journey, knowing that you know, as you've shared in your newsletter for The Pillar before, that this entailed some risks. Uh, founding a new outlet entailed risks for for your career and families that are depending on you. So yeah, what inspired this endeavor? Yeah, thanks so much for asking. And thanks for saying that you read The Pillar. I'm, I'm really grateful that people read it. Um, I guess a little bit of background. I think you mentioned my training is as a canon lawyer. And mm-hmm. sort of the first part of my career, I worked in the kind of ecclesiastical uh, administrative bureaucracy of the church. I worked as um, in a sort of number of sort of uh, chancery positions, including as the vice chancellor and chancellor of the Archdiocese of Denver, and then in a kind of senior advisory and policymaking role in the Diocese of Lincoln, where my friend Bishop Jim Conley had become the bishop. We worked together in Denver, and then he became the bishop in Nebraska. So I moved to Nebraska for a little while. I was not that good at being a Nebraskan, but I tried. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, so the first part of my career is, was working in um, the sort of administrative day-to-day um, operational work of the church's hierarchical function. And um, yeah. after a while, in that capacity, I had worked in, in a number of ways kind of with media. And part of that is that my first boss in the church was um, was Archbishop Charles Shapu, who I think is really has a really keen and insightful understanding of how media works and why it's important and had made it a priority in his teaching ministry as a bishop to engage with media, um, not just in his diocese, but more broadly than that. And so I learned a lot Mm. about that and about the potential and the power of media, like for not only for the church to sort of get its point across in a kind of cultural way, but the potential and power of media in a kind of formational way Mm. and in a kind of way that I think could help people to better understand not just what Catholics think or what legislative thing Catholics were working towards or that kind of thing, but how Catholics think and to sort of be that working with media could contribute to 
the intellectual formation of Catholics themselves, and then contribute something to the common good by sort of demonstrating the way that Catholics at their best think through and reason through um, social issues or cultural issues or whatever. So after working in diocesan administration for more than a decade, I had an opportunity to kind of work in media. I was hired to be the editor of Catholic News Agency, which is a kind of daily mm-hmm. um, news wire service that's owned by by Catholic media conglomerate WTN. I did that for a couple of years, and um, the timing was really unusual for me because I had much of my career in working in the church because I'm a canon lawyer, had been dealing with... Um, what we call priest personnel issues, priests who had mm-hmm. had some disciplinary issue in their in their life or some serious crisis in their life that manifested in some problematic way in their ministry often. And uh, a big part of my work in the diocese is where I worked and then in other dioceses as well as a kind of consultant was to help bishops to address those things. And I learned, you know, I just learned sort of a lot about how those processes work and also about kind of the psychology of of the church's administrative apparatus with regard to those things. So I started working as a journalist in 2017, and I kind of thought that I'd put that stuff on the shelf for a while. And then in 2018, the church had this profound scandal of Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, who, yeah. you know, was found to have committed all these very egregious acts of of sexual abuse, both of minors and of adults and seminarians and all kinds of things. And that created, I think, or made room in Catholic media for a more sophisticated coverage of kind of the church's canonical processes with regard to these things and also the sort of the, mm. the way in which the church's sort of culture and approach to these issues needed to be reformed and renewed. And because I'd been working in that for a long time, it sort of felt providential to me that we at Catholic News Agency would do a lot of that kind of work. So we did, and we were able to cover, I think, McCarrick very thoroughly, and then some of the ecclesiastical fallout from that and the way that different bishops handled or didn't handle that and the way that the church would develop a sort of reform initiative and and those kinds of things. So I did that for a couple of years at Catholic News Agency, but although that was a positive experience and I had a very good staff, one of the things that became clear to me is that much of Catholic media is sort of... um, can become driven by ecclesiopartisan agendas or theological ideological agendas and that that can yeah and that can impact the way in which things are covered and i think if you pay attention to sort of catholic media you can see that that there are sort of Mm -hmm. there's a broad swath of things which would be of and by and for the left and a broad swath of things which would be of and by and for the right and maybe that's okay sort of on the op-ed page but the danger is that that can begin to shape news coverage in all kinds of ways and so yeah, it's formational mm-hmm. yeah it really is and especially in the kind of choices that are made about what gets covered and what doesn't get covered or the way things get covered and those kinds of things and so we saw a need we grew concerned that a sort of upswell of awareness of the need for the church to be reformed with regard to formation for clerics and and justice and accountability in the life of the church, we saw the way in which that was becoming relatively quickly politicized, that at the sort Mm -hmm. of beginning of the McCarrick scandal, there were lots of people on all sides saying very similar kinds of things about the way in which the church might be reformed, and that sort of transcended ideology and partisanship. But it didn't take very long for the conversation about the church's reform and renewal on those fronts to be sort of subsumed into broader conversations about ideology and partisanship. And we didn't we didn't love that. And so my partner and I, my journalism partner, Ed, Ed and I, um, who, who worked with me at CNA, decided to launch a journalism project that would be focused to some extent on sort of public accountability and investigative journalism of these questions of reform and renewal on matters pertaining to the Sixth Commandment, that is to say sexual issues, but also on financial accountability in the church mm-hmm. and other kinds of leadership issues that we think the church is well served by being treated in addition to being sort of treated through the eyes of faith and recognized as the sacrament of our salvation, which is the foundation of our belief, that there's also value to treating the church as a genuine sort of 
temporal socio-political institution and to understanding it yeah. as a human community which is impacted by culture and law and all kinds of human motivations as well. So we launched the pillar with that in mind and we try to do that in a way that is not only kind of um investigative we really are conscientious that we don't want to become kind of the scandal of the week sort of thing but that would right. serve the church in a way by raising issues of public accountability or raising areas that are in need of reform but also trying to find places where there are solutions to real and practical problems posed in the life of the church and to highlight those solutions as much as we can to sort of provide analysis of the way in which those things are decided sometimes and the factors which impact that decision making and especially just to be a place where people who work in and around the church or whose lives are very much connected to the sort of institutional life of the church can find the things which matter to them in their day-to-day -day life, their work life and their social life and their cultural life can be covered intelligently and cogently mm -hmm. and hopefully soberly. So we launched the pillar for that and um, we weren't quite sure how it would go. Um, in a certain way, what we were doing, what we did was part of a broader trend in sort of journalism on the whole. Lots of journalists over the past three years have disaffiliated from large established institutions to mm. try to create sort of smaller sub niche journalism movement. projects, the Substack movement, exactly. Yeah. And so in the big picture, what we did was not all that unusual. In the church, it seemed super unusual because no one had done it in the church yet. Mm. Um, and so people were like, where did you get this idea of Substack? And we're like, <laughs> uh, we read about it in the New York Times, you know. <laughs> yeah. But, um, but uh, uh, we launched on Substack and we've tried to build something that does reporting and analysis. And then over time, our own voices, we found a place for our own voices to sort of editorial voices to emerge a little bit because we we also have as substacks do sort of twice weekly more editorial newsletters yeah. in which we provide sort of our own insight and analysis on the church and and the thing i've been most proud of i mean i think we have done a lot of things that contribute to reform and renewal in the church i think there have been a lot of things that we have investigated that i think are serious and important one of the things i've been most proud of is that we have built a team of correspondents in different parts of the world we have a, a really courageous latin american correspondent who sort of dives into extremely tense situations with temerity and um, mm. and honesty. And then we have a Nigerian correspondent who lives effectively in the heart of Boko Haram's territory and covers the wow. persecution of the church there. And then we've had a Ukrainian correspondent who has covered uh, the war in Ukraine and its impact on the lives of believers really intelligently and with a great sort of sobriety of perspective. But basically when thing, when churches blow up in Ukraine, our correspondent Anatoly like, gets in his car to go talk to people right away. He's He has taken to serious coverage of of a global crisis zone. And so I'm really proud that we have we have those um, correspondents, that our subscribers help to make their work possible, and that our American readers have the opportunity to see the universality of, of the experience of Catholics, but then at the same time to see like the commonality of like mm. ecclesiastical issues in all of those places are not that different. Mm -hmm. A pastor in Western Nigeria, like Boko Haram territory, has Boko Haram problems, but he also has the same kind of catechesis and parish administration problems that a pastor in suburban Maryland does. And it's, I think, useful for us to see that kind of real honest-to-God sort of connectivity yeah. that we have in the life of the church. So I've been really proud of that that work, among others. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. That struck me in, in the reporting on Ukraine as well that you guys have done. And I'm really grateful for it. And I really appreciate how you drew out numerous needs of the church that inspired and are animating the work that you're doing at the pillar. This uh, this need for unity amid polarization, uh, freedom from ideology, 
the kind of like slow, deep work that you're investing resources to do with with boots on the ground, as it were. And this has struck me for a while as a longtime subscriber of The Pillar. Um, but yeah, I think this is a beautiful illustration of the prophetic call that we all receive in baptism, that we're called to seek and speak the truth uh, for the sake of the salvation of souls. And because of this, like the church's needs are our task, like they belong to us. And yet, at the same time, I see in you how the call to uh, the life of a prophet is the call to a, a life of sacrifice. And, and in particular, seeing how you're being asked to attend to and explore and ponder some of the darkest areas of our church's contemporary landscape. And yeah, and and yet it's clear from the way that you write that you under- understand yourself as a son of the church, that you are working from from the heart of the church. And so I'm, I'm wondering what sustains you in that sense of sonship amid the scandals that, I mean, it's nothing new. It's, you know, from from the very first century that scandals have been rocking the church. But um, but yeah, what sustains your your hope and your sonship amid this? I, I almost don't want to answer, Sophia, because I want you to keep saying all these nice things about me. That was such a kind... <laughs> wow, exactly. There's more I could say. Um, <laughs> that's so nice. Um, I, look, I, I, I appreciate what, what you say. I mean, I want to be clear. The point that you make about freedom from ideology is really important to us, but it's not easy either because we yeah. unquestionably have opinions about things that happen in the life of the church and perspectives on what's good for the church and, and even um, our own sets of tribal loyalties. I mean, we really ecclesiastical tribalism can be a really dangerous thing mm-hmm. and we have to check it in ourselves because we cut our teeth in the church in lots of ways and grew up as as adults and as professionals in the life of the church and that means that we have a set of people who we feel a certain kind of filial and natural loyalty to and and those kinds of things and we have to check ourselves against that mm-hmm. and i'm not 100% sure we always get it right and i'm not 100% sure we always do it well we certainly have lost friends in our own sort of tribes most often in our own tribes because from people who think that we'll be sort of loyal to the team. Yeah. And, you know, we sort of have to say, well, our team, and we <laughs> we sort of probably sound like jerks when we say, like, well, our team are those who know and do the will of God or some stupid jerky thing like that. But we try to make it true, right? That yeah. we really, we try to be free from sort of partisan allegiance, even though it's natural for everybody to have that in any kind of human community, especially including the, that of the church. So we have to check ourselves against that. And then we have to check ourselves against the most natural temptation for every journalist, um, which is ego and self-importance. Yeah. I think sometimes we're successful at that and sometimes we're not. But, you know, you write things down and then they happen and you start to think that you matter. And that's that's different from a prophetic call where the call of the prophet in, in our baptism, just our ordinary call to be prophets, is to point people to the presence of God in the world. Right. You don't matter in that except insofar as you're an instrument of that work. And so, but we have to check as the sort of natural human inclination in journalism to build a, a sense of self-importance and sorry you might be able to hear my kids there sorry about that i might window. no i love um, it unity of life man <laughs> right to build a kind of self-importance and then um you know honestly part of the reason why journalists develop big egos is because they help them to have thick skins and mm. you know you have to sort of get used to the fact that lots of people don't like you yeah and one way that you do that is to just sort of build up this kind of natural so so um if you're going to deal with the fact that lots of people don't like you in a more Christian way, and you're going to sort of deal with the, your sense of journalism as a kind of expression of the prophetic call of baptism in a more Christian way, I think the only way to do it is with an interior life. And yeah. I can't exactly speak for Ed, but I, I know that this is true for him and it's true for me too. Part of what has been really helpful for me is to develop the spiritual discipline of the liturgy of the hours. And mm. the reason for that is because 
precisely because the Liturgy of the Hours is the prayer of the church, mm-hmm. when we pray the the Liturgy of the Hours, the breviary, we're sort of plunging ourselves into a continuity in which this sort of prayer, the cycle of prayer is more than a millennia old and uninterrupted in custom and practice for more than a millennia. And so we're plunging ourselves into something where the continuity of the thing as an expression of the communion of the baptized is so much bigger than ourselves and so much more important of ourselves. We're sort of like privileged to slip into this stream of of spiritual ablation much more than we are doing something as an individual or something like that. And for me at least, and I think this is true for Ed, for me at least that's really helpful to be able to say, yeah, not only am I a son of the church, but I am i can't put myself in some sort of position of, like, imagine myself in some sort of position of sitting over the church in judgment, even if I'm assessing and reporting on the areas in which she's in need of reform, because I'm the most unworthy participant in the communion of this sort of ongoing mm. act of worship to God, which is the liturgy. So that's really important. Um, the stuff that you ask about, like, gifted, we go into the darker stuff of the church, and we spend a lot of time talking, um, honestly, with the victims of clerical sexual abuse, especially we spent a lot of time talking with adult victims of clerical sexual abuse. That's something we've done a lot of reporting on, and yeah. the families of people who have been abused by clerics, and that, that can be hard. I know for myself, I've done a lot of that reporting, and there are times when I have to sort of step away from it and say I'm kind of on a break from that kind of work, because it just can become very psychologically taxing. Yeah. And then... Two, to sort of remember the reason for it. Again, like we tell those stories if they're illustrative of a problem and if they help people put a face on a phenomenon, but we don't want to tell those stories in a way that is exploitive or that becomes trauma porn or something like that. Mm -hmm, And uh, mm -hmm. in my experience, that kind of work is best done in a common disposition of prayer between the sort of subject and the journalist. But again, that stuff can be kind of psychologically taxing, and so we take breaks from it from time to time. As it happens, I'm sort of on a break from it right now. I put off a couple of stories just because I, again, they can become kind of psychologically taxing and kind of exhausting in a way. And so, um, but that's kind of a tangent, I guess, from the main point, which is, I think to do this work as a son of the church, as to do any kind of work in the life of the church as a son of the church, is to remember to have the praxis by which we know that we are fully submitting ourselves to the communion of the baptized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. I really, I love those pillars that you drew out, the the prayer, including liturgy, relationship, and uh, and this practice of memory, embodied memory, which of course is related to both prayer and relationship. And I've been struck by, you you mentioned the Liturgy of the Hours, I've been struck by how in your newsletters, you'll often include passages from the Office of Readings for a saint of the day and connect it to like events that you're reporting on in the news. And I'm sure part of that is just like, you got to put the newsletter together. Um, I got to fill in newsletters, Sophia. (laughs) (laughs) If I'm I'm jumping to the the Office of Readings, there's a decent chance I didn't have a third act for the newsletter. Yeah, yeah, I thought that might be, (laughs) I thought that might be part of it. But I I think though, what's also struck me is that there's a deeper what sustains you is in this sense also it's the communion of saints it's the current exemplars that you have you've also done some wonderful reporting on where things are going well in the church and exemplars of holiness that we have around us now but then also previous examples of people who have navigated and weathered crises in the church that are dare i say far more extreme than the ones we're facing now and done it as sons and daughters of the church yeah, and so I think that's that's really helpful. I want to circle back, though. You also mentioned, yeah, the struggle to be free from ideology and how you and Ed, of course, as none of us are, you aren't immune to the temptation to tribalism and to partisan judgments. I was just having a conversation with some friends a couple days ago about how 
freedom from ideology is not the same thing as being a blank slate. And that actually in, yeah. the, in the process of Christian maturity, we grow to have more and more an immediate judgment when we come up against things because our reason is formed and we have become stronger in our capacity to see the truth of reality and its wholeness. But that said, for that to not become a sort of ideological hardness, it's important to always, this is what we're saying on Wednesday, I'm not saying I do this, but to allow reality to become the starting point rather than even your well-formed judgments um, that you've that you've acquired through this process of education of your reason. I think one thing, one place where I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on this dynamic is in the role of law in the church. You mentioned earlier, of course, the church is the sacrament of our salvation, it's the mystical body of Christ, but that it's also a temporal institution. And I think you as a canon lawyer have a really unique, uh, among us lay people at least, uh, perspective on on the unity of these, the tension between these two dimensions of the life of the church. Um, so I'm interested in, yeah, how does your formation as a canon lawyer inform the way that you investigate the news? I mean, beyond just methodological expertise, like, is there a way that you understand the role that law plays in maintaining the structure and life of the church, which of course is a function of the Holy Spirit and not not of law, that is different from what you see elsewhere? And like, what can we learn from canon law in this in this regard? Yeah, uh, thanks for asking that. Um, JP2, I think, had some really good thoughts about this because one of the challenges of the JP2 papacy was to kind of combat an emerging antinomianism that mm. both preceded and followed the Second Vatican Council. A lot of people think that it merely followed the Second Vatican Council, but they forget that we had the Second Vatican Council for a reason. Could you define that for our listeners? Yeah, a sense that law is in some ways inimical to the gospel, that if we have life in the spirit, then we don't need law, and that law is a kind of pharisaical imposition on their Christian freedom and Christian charity and Christian holiness. Mm. Or that law is a kind of um, bureaucratic imposition on our capacity for a sort of internal judgment, both in morality and in governance, a sort of internal judgment about the good of a person who, with whom we're dealing, or our own good, that we have that capacity and that we shouldn't sort of bind ourselves to the imposition of moral norms or legal norms, norms for that matter, when we can instead make sort of immediate judgments based upon our mm. kind of Christian intuition or something like that. Mm -hmm. So antinomianism is a pervasive problem in the church and periodic problem in the church, maybe is a better way to say it, and really was a problem both in the decades which preceded the Second Vatican Council and the decades which followed it. And on moral, on the question of moral theology, like that's why JP2 wrote Veritatis Splendor is to say like, hey, there's a thing called absolute truth and um, we need it. And there's a thing called the principle of non-contradiction. And there's an actual thing called the conscience that doesn't just mean sort of an affirmation of our um, poorly formed intuition or something like yes. that. You know? Thank God. So in, <laughs> yeah, right. So Veritatis Splendor is super important from the perspective of moral theology. But law does that for us in a community as well. Like law mm. is meant to order a community towards its end. And since the church, like it's hard for us sometimes to remember this in the American context because one troubling or difficult thing of about the sort of American experiment is that its end is relatively undefined. Like we have some sense of this thing is for something called liberty or something called mm -hmm. human flourishing, but we don't really know what that is. And so the problem with not having a clarity about the end of America, so to speak, is that you end up with um, a sort of power struggle for of people with competing ends, right? And, yeah. um, and most of the time that gets reduced to um, profound individualism and then a kind of power struggle for individual advantage. Yeah. I, I think 
man, you go on a CL podcast, you just start talking about books. I don't know why, but I, I think um, recently I reread because I hadn't read it in a long time and I was on a plane and I, I was going on a long plane trip and I didn't have anything to read that I want to read something light on the long plane trip. So I reread the novel of Mario Puzo's The Godfather, like not the movie, but the novel. Ah, interesting. And yeah. The novel is so good, but one of the things that I think it is, is like a commentary on the American political and mm. economic individualism and the morality which ensues from that in which morality really is assessed by my own self-advantage and my own capacity to achieve that self-advantage. Yeah. I think that's a danger of now probably there are people who are much sort of higher on the American experiment than I am who would be who would say that I'm underselling America or something like that and maybe I am. But I'm only using it to say that a culture without a clear telos or a clearly established telos can run into trouble. The church is not like that because we have a very, very clear tell us. We know what we're for, the proclamation of the kingdom, the worship of God, the care for the poor, the salvation of souls as expressed in any number of ways. Like we know what we're for. And because of that, we're at a much greater advantage kind of legally and corporately because we can mm -hmm. create laws that are not just about kind of like protecting our individual rights or not just about sort of holding us at bay from killing each other or something like that, but we can create laws that are meant to advance us towards the achievement of this this end, which is sort of established as our purpose. And anybody who says it's not our purpose, we can just sort of point to our constitutional documents, i.e. sacred scripture and sacred tradition and say, well, you're wrong. This is not what the church is for. So that's a really good, good advantage for us. So JP2 kind of has to deal with his antinomianism. And he says, look, we know what the ecclesial society is for, and we have laws that aim at achieving that. And he says, people think that we are creating these laws as a kind of substitute for the primacy of faith or grace or charisms or something like that. But he says, actually, no, we think that faith and the grace and the charisms have a primacy in, in our pursuit of our end, our common end. But in order to render easier their organic development in this society, in order to sort of um, allow for the presence of the Holy Spirit to be known and to be discerned and to be discerned justly, law helps us to order our community towards that purpose, that our mm. law is for the sake of better discernment of the will of God in our community. Yeah. And I actually think many people who read The Pillar would probably disagree with me, but I actually think that's actually what Francis is trying to do with a sort of synodality movement in the church too, is to say, let's create a structure by which we can better discern the will of God for the sort of missionary and pastoral life of the church. People have taken advantage of that in all kinds of ways or misconstrued that in all kinds of ways or tried to sort of um, hijack it for their own agenda, whatever. But I think Francis is saying the same thing. Look, if we want to have the primacy of the Holy Spirit in our discernment of what we should be doing in the world, let's like create a kind of conversational structure by which we can Skeleton. better invite the Holy Spirit in and, yeah. and discern. And that's what law is for. In, in all things in the life of the church, that's what law is for, is to allow for the primacy of faith, grace, and the charisms in the pursuit of our ends. And so that, I think, knowing that and seeing the way in which the structure of the church on procedural law and penal law and sacramental law on all of those things is oriented towards these missiological ends of the church is helpful for us, I think, as we assess what's working and what's not working in the life of the church, because we can, can sort of assess not only sort of bare conformity to the law, but even the laws, the sort of underpinning law or reforming efforts, fidelity to that uh, to that mission. Mm. I, I don't know. The danger, of course, with having lawyers as, as uh, journalists, and we see this in ourselves, is sometimes we can be reductive to like, well, we can reduce the church to a human or political community and be reticent to 
sometimes we're reticent even to assess the sort of substance of theological debate or something like that. We tend to mm. sort of proceduralize it because it's the it's the arena in which we're the most comfortable. Yeah, it's easier. That is a danger for us. I'm not sure exactly how to resolve it either. I'm just increasingly aware of it as a bias in our sort of coverage approach. So I guess we have to figure that out. But I'm glad to have that as a baseline, at least, of like, we do think the methodology matters because the methodology itself is oriented towards a particular outcome. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. One of the things that has changed, I think, that you've helped draw my attention to in the law of the church in recent years is an emphasis on transparency, particularly when it comes to the sexual abuse crisis. And yeah, I think we've seen sort of, uh, how do I put this, less action on that front, maybe, than we desire um, among certain investigations. Uh, so I'm wondering, to what extent do you think that transparency is a good for the church? What does walking sort of this path of bringing to light what has hitherto been shoved into a dark corner, uh, what, does that, what does that bring to the church? Is there a limit to the transparency that we should desire? And how does a desire for transparency different from a desire for truth? Do you have thoughts on that? Those are good questions. Um, I think the Freedom of Information Act is good for the civil societies. I think it helps to keep people to ensure that people know that there is some measure of external accountability for their actions, and that that can be a deterrence against doing bad things or a motivator to do good things. Yeah. When we don't have that in the church, we can just become. It's too easy, I think, especially to let things that matter fall by the wayside. I, I'm generally speaking, very supportive of people who are in administrative positions in the life of the church, because I think they have a lot more work than people recognize and mm. a lot less like training by which to achieve it. But the consequence of that is that like one of the problems with the church's sort of administrative apparatus is it's easy to let things that aren't important to you fall by the wayside to just like let things linger on your desk for an indefinite period of time. Yeah. Like, for example, we've been covering for a while now a situation of scandal in the Diocese of Knoxville, Tennessee, and, mm -hmm. you know, one of the things that is an element of this is there's a bunch of priests who wrote to the Apostolic Nuncio of the United States, the Pope's diplomat to the United States, asking basically for help with their situation, like, two years ago, and the letter was really quite touching and sad and serious, and they never got a response at all. And I don't I don't think it's because the Apostolic Nuncio doesn't care about them. I think it's because it was a, an extremely difficult situation in which he probably wasn't sure exactly what he should say or was allowed to say, and therefore it was mm -hmm. super easy for him to let it just mm -hmm. fester on his desk until I made it a pain in the ass for him. He still didn't write back to them, but I think it became harder for him to not write back to him after he made it a pain in the ass for him. So I think transparency about people's fulfillment of the responsibilities of their office can be a motivation to do hard things when it's very easy yeah. with the sort of cover of darkness to put hard things off to the side and let hard things fester. And I think that's probably how we got McCarrick is if you read the McCarrick report, there are lots of people who thought, yeah, McCarrick's doing bad stuff in one way or another. We suspect McCarrick's doing bad stuff in one way or another, but we don't know how to deal with it. And we don't feel equipped to deal with it. And we don't feel any pressure to deal with it. And so we just won't, and it will make it kick the can someone else's the problem, or yeah, or kick the can up and down the hill, back and forth, over and over again. And transparency makes that less difficult, or more difficult, because it can correlate specific responsibilities to specific individuals. Mm -hmm. The limit, I guess, to transparency is, um, obviously, there's a sacramental limit to transparency, but I think that that's a given. Um, I think that the church is in such need of administrative reform, procedural reform, that it's very difficult for me to see, to talk about the limits of transparency because we're so far from even the beginnings of transparency, you know, like totally. the, the, the Holy See doesn't acknowledge the penal processes which take place in the, you know, which it's responsible for by virtue of canon law. 
it doesn't acknowledge the existence of them or publish the outcomes of them, let alone sort of make available the proceedings. So it feels to me a little bit silly to say like, well, the limits of transparency should be that maybe the proceedings should be redacted. It would be really cool if we just had the names of the cases that we're undergoing at any particular time, you know? Yeah. There are some limits of transparency, but I think that's a problem we can deal with when we get to sort of even meeting sort of basic functional levels of a human society. Um, you know, I mean, I do think it's good. Like, I have been urging that the U.S. bishops meet in executive session more often because when they mm. meet in front of TV cameras for their biannual annual meetings, they just talk like people who are in front of TV cameras, which means they don't say anything for hours and hours. And they sort of, then they go out for the coffee break and they say all the things that they were waiting to say. And I think it'd be better for them to say it in the room where they're supposed to be saying it. So there are limits to transparency in terms of like honest fraternal sort of communion and engagement among the college of bishops, among the bishops of a country, among a priest and his bishops, among lay people and priests and creative sessions and things like that. But I think even a start would be, for example, when the bishops go into executive session, which is a good thing, it wouldn't be a bad thing for the USCCB to like acknowledge what the agenda is for that so that Catholics can at least know, like right now, you know, one of the things that a lot of priests are talking about is there was this big survey last year from Catholic University of America that said that priests have, um, don't have a lot of confidence in their bishops, they don't trust their bishops, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. The bishops, I think, are going to talk about that in their executive session at the of the USCCB meeting next month in Orlando, but they haven't acknowledged that and they won't acknowledge that, which means that priests don't even know that their bishops are talking about this thing, which for them is like a very hurtful and difficult thing. Mm. So I think even acknowledging, like while I think executive sessions and private conversations are good, even acknowledging what conversations are happening is an important step because it imbues people with confidence that issues that they see that they're not blind to are being talked about even if that doesn't mean they have the right to the sort of substance of the conversation at every level. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think it gets to another tension that I see in the life of the church, though, which is the tension between the the local and the global, um, or better yet, the universal, really. Because I think one of the modern anomalies <laughs> that can make it difficult to find Catholic news that's uh that's not ideological is the ability to like hear what pope francis said on a plane to a journalist five minutes ago yeah. now and in that action to in following that breathlessly to forget that the life of the church is rooted uh down the street at my local parish in the daily celebration of the mass honestly yeah. um so i'm wondering i mean you spoke before about things that sustain you in your personal life uh in your identity as a son of the church i imagine they're similar in rooting you in a sense of the local nature the particular nature of the church as it reaches you um through particular faces and sacraments in your life how does this inform your reporting because of the need uh necessarily to to focus so often on issues that are affecting the church as a whole universally what's well, really helpful for me i think i try almost no i live in denver and i try almost never to report on things that are happening in the archdiocese of denver even if mm. they're extremely interesting to me mm. because i have to have a space where my pastor is my pastor and where like priests who I'm, who I've known a long time are my friends and these kinds of things. And so I, you have to carve out a space. But one thing about that space is that it also, I think is helpful to sort of know the most helpful thing for us is to just know what's on the minds and hearts of Catholics who have a deep institutional connection to the church. Like what yeah. are the things which they experience? What are their impressions of things? What are their concerns? 
what are their ideas and how is the Holy Spirit sort of moving in their lives. And that does inform kind of the things which we prioritize as a sort of coverage choices. So in that sense, just having sort of ordinary human relationships in the life of the church is really helpful to me. I, I teach as an adjunct at St. Pat's Seminary in Menlo mm. Park, and that's really helpful for me because I just like to talk to the guys about what's, what they see in the church, what matters to them in the church. And it's not like I have my notebook out, you know, say it again, Joe, you know, I'm just like <laughs> knowing them, but yeah. just knowing them, knowing an ordinary sort of cross-section of the church is really helpful. I mean, honestly, the most important ex- set of experiences for me as a Catholic is the experience of my own domestic church and the place of my domestic yeah. church in our parish. And I don't mean that as a cliche, like the Christian life is much more concretely lived for me in marriage and fatherhood and Christian community and our family's apostolic life our family's prayer life and our family's apostolic life than in like kind of Vatican stuff, which is work in a certain way. But the two are unquestionably connected. And part of our work, I think, is to think about what do we want the church to be for our children? Mm. My son has a vocation to the priesthood. What do I want? What do I hope will be true of his seminary experience? What do I hope will be true of his experience as a priest? And, you know, my son's but six. So what do I hope would be true of his experience as a priest in 20 years? What are the areas where the church is in need of reform such that like some of my own just sort of natural hopes for my own children would be more easily realized or something like that in their own, in their own vocational lives. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. That reminds me of what Jusani says about charity, that it's, it's fundamentally born from a need that one recognizes in one's own life. And only then from there, is it a genuine sharing of life and an act of service to others um, rather than starting from the needs of others that you think you can fix, but actually looking at your own life and yeah, and, and I, I'm you know, I that- heard uh, I heard Albacetti say that once, but he put so many more curses into it that it was, you know, t- <laughs> <laughs> slightly cleaner language than Albacetti. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm uh, I'm grateful that you brought up fatherhood again. I truly was um, very moved by your talk at the New York Encounter and. What you said about how your children, particularly those with Down syndrome, have shaped your gaze on reality. And I know this is a vast topic <laughs> um, that we could have a whole nother podcast episode on. But, you know, as a way of concluding, I'm wondering if you would, yeah, share with us. You spoke earlier about how helpful it is to have clarity in a society about its end. And so often this is reduced to a sort of technocratic individualism. Like, how can uh, loving in a domestic church and loving, those with different abilities than ourselves, how can this heal some of the ways that this ideology of individualism wounds us? Yeah, thanks. That's a really good question. Um, I wish I had more systematic thoughts about being a dad, which is just like being a dad, you know. But I, I, so I have three children. Two of my children uh, have Down syndrome. My son, Max, who's 11, who has Down syndrome and then has some other serious neurological issues as well. My daughter, Pia, who's 10 and has Down syndrome. And then my son, Daniel, is five, um, not six, like I said before, he's five. And, um, doesn't have Down syndrome. Although he's sometimes, because the older kids get, you know, have all these accommodations, special yeah. needs, I think is a phrase I'll cause. Yeah. Uh, my, my older kids have all these accommodations and needs and sometimes, you know, can just be very demanding of our time. And so one of the real challenges in our family all the time is to sort of just remind Davey, like his natural vocation is that he has to have a lot of selflessness with regard mm. to what they need relative to what he needs. And God has called him by virtue of the circumstances of his birth to, be a friend and a brother to them and and that requires certain set demands certain sacrifices of him that make his childhood somewhat unusual in lots of ways yeah. uh and so we often are like a real 
challenge in our family is just like how we're forming him to love them. And he takes to that so naturally that it's not hard. In fact, it's often, we learn a lot from that. But sometimes if the the kids need something or are getting a lot of attention. David just sort of stomps his foot and says, I have Down syndrome too. <laughs> I, you know, and then and they'll use it for like, I have Down syndrome. I need a Lego, you know, because he just sees that they'll get yeah. a little whatever. My son Max has a an iPad that he uses as a communications device. It helps him with assistive communicative mm-hmm. technology. Mm-hmm. Like he uses it for talking and stuff like that. But Davey just thinks like, oh, Max gets time with an iPad. So he's like, well, I want to have Down syndrome so I can have my own iPad, you know, like so. Yes. <laughs> it's very sort of normal. There's nothing sentimental for him about the disability of his siblings which i think is the most important and beautiful thing you know someone someone said to us recently my son max was has a lot of social desires and it's hard for him to make friends because he's shy and he wants to be friends with boys his own age and they're much bigger than him and they play sports faster than him and they do everything faster than him but some boys and uh some parents had included max in a kind of um sports stuff in our neighborhood and i reached out to one of the dads and i said you know thanks for including max it really means a lot to us and we really appreciate how thoughtful you are about that and he he says to me yeah well max is a really amazing person and we're so glad for it and i shared that with my wife and we just laughed like Oh, I guess he is an amazing person, but we forgot because he's just our kid. And so yeah. we're just like annoyed with him about all the being our kids. So um, yeah. the, the point is like, you, you know, I think one thing about knowing and loving people with disabilities very closely is that the lenses through which we tend to look at people of either overt sentimentality, like over sentimentalizing their identity or viewing them in a manner of being competitors or viewing them as only sort of their externalities or their mm-hmm. productive capacity in a technocratic way. A lot of that does get stripped away from knowing and loving people with disabilities, and you do see much more. You're you're blessed, and I know it sounds like a cliche, but you're blessed much more to see, to see and share in the needs of a person and their vulnerabilities and their weaknesses, and then to see and share in the victories, like how often things that seem very normal are actually victories for them because of the kind of work or fortitude or perseverance that it takes, and that's a real like that is a real gift for us. I don't know how it translates into our journalism other than that. I hope that I better learn to be able to receive people in their vulnerabilities mm-hmm. and and receive them kind of on their own terms and in their own experiences, which I think is good for journalism. But um, but it is a gift for me in the Christian life to have that experience with my children and to see, to learn something in, the, in our relationship of paternity and maternity with them, something about divine sonship and mm-hmm. the intercession of the Blessed Mother, and then also just to learn from them something about our humanity too. So I don't know. I, I try very hard not to be cliche when talking about these things because I don't want to sort of, there's a way in which one can talk about people with disabilities that can reduce them by romanticism. Yeah. And I don't want to do that, but they are a gift in, in a way that's unique and has been, that I'm very grateful for. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for uh, making the effort of articulating a judgment to us because it's precisely that the beauty, the not sentimental, but the very real embodied beauty is a gift for all of us that passes through your your domestic church, through your flesh. So thank you. Thank you. For- I'd love for you to map their brains. I mean, very honestly, like I, <laughs> okay. that would be super fascinating. Don't get me started on the lack of, of research on children with Down syndrome. There's totally. so much that we don't know about their health and development. And it's just, okay, I will not start this tangent, but... And not only that, not only that, I'm going to start this tangent. If we studied people with Down syndrome more, we would know so much more about Alzheimer's than... Do you know that yes. like, the highest population of genetic predisposition to Alzheimer's it's is people with Down, Down syndrome who have almost certitude? Yeah. And if we studied that, like if we were, we would be so much further along. Totally. It, even in our self-interest, it's right there. Well, you'll be, you'll be glad to know there were two posters on it at the latest British Neuroscience national conference so maybe that's an increase from before but i'm totally with you i'm sorry could i just ask a question about neuroscience now please 
when you say there were two posters, yeah. do you mean that when there's a big science conference of grownups, <laughs> scientists are making posters like at a science fair? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's exactly that's what happens. <laughs> amazing. Do you ever stop and Fewer just marvel at gold that? gold like, stars than when we were in middle school, but no, I'd wow. come completely desensitized. It's very normal for me. That's incredible. I had no idea. Yep. Huh. Okay. Well, on that note, uh, thank you so much for being with us today. I, I'm i very grateful for the chance to share this conversation with our listeners and to unpack a little bit more the depth that is contained in your reporting and your editorializing. So each month we offer a, a challenge to our listeners to go deeper into the topic of our episode. And I would like to take responsibility for the monthly challenge uh, for this episode. I would invite all of our listeners to go to your website, which I believe is PillarCatholic.com. Uh, yeah, PillarCatholic.com. PillarCatholic.com. So go to the Pillars website, do some reading. I would invite you all to pray for the work of Ed and JD and their collaborators and to consider subscribing. I know that additional emails in your inbox aren't for everyone, but I have found great benefit from staying up to date on what's happening in the church through the Pillars. So my monthly challenge would be to go check out PillarCatholic.com. We also recommend a piece of uh, media that illustrates what we've, we've discussed. Is there something that comes to mind i i have been trying to think about that what is a piece of media that illustrates what we discussed and i don't know this is a bad connection but it's a book that i wanted to recommend because i just read it again a, a little while ago and i just like it a lot ha have you ever read mr blue a little novel by a guy named miles Connolly? it's a book about not. a sort of a holy fool in, oh i love who lives fools. in the united states in like the 20s and he's just delightful and um maybe it helps journalistically because his life is just one beautiful mystery after another so mm. i guess yeah if you love interesting characters in the life of the church and the life of the world an underappreciated american novel is this little book mr blue uh, by miles Connolly. thank you thank you that's going on my my summer reading list do it all right and if there are any questions from listeners please feel free to email me pilgrimsoulpodcast.gmail.com all of the resources that we talked about in today's episode will be in the show notes and you can also find our archive at pilgrimsoulpodcast.com just a reminder that julie and adriana have recently welcomed or are imminently welcoming their new babies so please continue praying for them and you'll hear from me again next month god bless you